God speaks to us. So we think that there's nothing else under all creation that uh, tells us more clearly who Jesus is and what he's done for us in the Bible. And so we value just hearing it, actually making it a form of worship. So when the Bible is spoken over us or we hear God's word spoken over us, we can rehear and understand the gospel of grace. And maybe for the first time or hundredth time or millionth time that Jesus is great and he saves us uh, through his blood. And so we're going to do that again today. We are in a series now on the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're newer to the Bible, Matthew is uh, the first book of the New Testament and the first of four gospel accounts, which are the theological history of his birth and his early ministry. And uh, actually, we're going to talk about John the Baptist today too, So, who is the preparer of the way of Christ, and then the early ministry of Christ and his middle portions of his ministry when he healed a lot of people and spoke in parables. But Really, the the meat of the Gospels and the meat of all of Scripture is the cross. That's where he's headed. Everything prepares the way for for the cross. So not just John the Baptist we're going to see today, but everything, the Old Testament into the early parts of the New Testament, is preparing the way for the cross and the empty tomb. Everything's about it. All the Bible, all of history finds its goal in that. And so we're going to see today in in a kind of a unique way, because we don't hear a lot about John the Baptist in the Bible, The Gospels tell us a little bit about him. We learned a little bit about him earlier in Matthew 3. Today we're in Matthew 11, so uh, several months ago we looked at uh, the beginning portions of who he was and the character of of John and what his ministry was like, and today we're going to learn a little bit more about him as well. But uh, the middle section today of uh, this series we're calling Demonstrating and Declaring the Gospel of Christ, and specifically today, this idea of dancing to the flute of Christ. So these are words of, of Jesus here in Matthew 11. I'll come back to that here in a little bit, but... A big way we're characterizing the middle section here of Matthew in declaring and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom is just talking about how much he he confronts the world with his message. He interacts with all kinds of people, so demonized people, sick people, religious leaders, Jews and Gentiles, so Jews and non-Jews, and his own disciples, and now John the Baptist's disciples. So the whole context to today is that John the Baptist is in prison And he hears a lot about Christ and what he's teaching, what he's all about, the miracles he's performing. And he sends his disciples to go and ask Jesus. He's a little bit confused about what Jesus is up to. And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really, in fact, the one? I think you are. I thought you were, but you're not what I expected exactly. So he sends his disciples from prison to go and ask Jesus this. And Jesus responds basically with 16 verses of yes. So it's awesome he doesn't just say yes, but he uses, he always does this. He's a master at this. He, he uses interaction with people and questions that they have for him as a means to point back to himself. And it's good that he does this. He's God. If we do this, it's arrogance, right? But if Jesus does this, if God does this, it's, it's an expression of love because we need him. And the core of sin is self-worship. And so part of what Jesus is doing is loving the world by confronting the world, by showing that The only one that can heal humanity of its spiritual cancer is him. There's one message to Matthew. One of the main messages is is that no other doctors, no other gods, no other philosophies, nothing inside of us can save us except Jesus. It's very clear. Everything fails except him. And so he's doing that. He's confronting the world and its expectations of a Messiah or its false trust in self through his teachings and through his miracles to, again, point back to, point back to himself. But he's going to use this question, so he's just going about his way, teaching and preaching in cities and demonstrating the fact that God is here to save and to heal through miracles. And he's stopped by these individuals, John the Baptist's disciples, and asked, are you really the Messiah? And he responds beautifully, wonderfully. And we learn a lot, not just about Christ, but about the whole of the scriptures here, too. He's going to quote some from the Old Testament, 
about Elijah and how John the Baptist was anticipated there too. And it's a really a fantastically deep but wonderful passage that tells us a lot about Christ and, and his grace. So let's start reading. Uh, Matthew 11, 1 to 19 is today's passage. And I'll, I'm going to break this down into uh, three sections. And we'll just take it a uh, section at a time here, so like we usually do. Matthew 11, 1 to 3. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So remember what John the Baptist did, if you're uh, new today or newer to the Bible, just to recap you in a bit and remind you of who he is or tell you for the first time possibly. We're going to learn a little bit more about who John is here in a second, but essentially John is the one, like Peter said before, the one who prepares the way for Jesus. Probably you could argue in the most explicit way Uh, that has happened throughout biblical history. All the Old Testament is really about preparing the way for Christ, but John is that final final threshold, you could say, of history. Before Christ comes into the world, he actually baptizes Jesus as the the beginning point of his ministry. He is this one that prepares the way in person, as a prophet, prepares the way for Christ with a call to repentance. Repentance means to turn from the old way of living. So he's basically saying, prepare your hearts. God is here. Prepare hearts to receive him, and he also baptizes people as well. So we call him John, John the Baptist. But really after Matthew 3, so Jesus is born in the early sections of Matthew. Uh, Matthew 1 and 2 tells the accounts of that. Then we go right into John and his ministry, but really after half a chapter, he fades right to the background. We don't hear anything about him until here in chapter 11. But a couple of verses from Matthew 3 to remind you of where we've been about John. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people from all Judea and Jerusalem, Judea was the greater uh, province or region, were baptized by him. So remember too, John's baptism here itself was preparatory. So uh, Christian baptism, which came later, symbolized and indicated different things and was about a little bit of a different theological principle. John's baptism was more about washing and preparing the heart. So it's a little bit different. In fact, in the book of Acts, it says that there are people in the early church that were baptized by John the Baptist, but they weren't yet baptized as Christians, and it was a problem. They, they had to be. And so the disciples were aware of this, and they sent people to go preach good news and, and baptize them, them again as Christians. So uh, this baptism, again, was preparatory. It called the Jews to prepare their hearts for this new thing that God was doing in the world, namely, namely Christ. All right, so that's who John is. To remind you, we're going to see a little bit more about him here in a second. Jesus teaches some more on him in relation to the Old Testament. But again, now at this point in Matthew 11, after Jesus had begun his ministry, it's probably about a year, year and a half after John baptized Jesus. And shortly after that, he was imprisoned by Herod. And he's in prison, hearing about Jesus and what he's doing, his miracles, like I said before, but wondering if, in fact, he is the one. So that's a big piece to this. It doesn't make much sense if we don't get that contextual piece there. He's just wondering, is he the one? I hear a lot about what he's doing. I see some things he's up to. I hear about his healings, but he's not meeting all of my expectations. And, and remember, this is a widespread thing. John is one micro example here of the macro issue. Lots of the Jews, you could say all of them to a degree, were starting to get disillusioned with Jesus and his ministry at this point. It's a big piece to confrontation. Remember, he's confronting religious people, confronting the religious rulers, leaders even, who are expecting certain things about the Messiah, but don't understand. And so that it sets the stage for a lot of his teaching and a lot of his clash with these types of people. In a lot of cases, really good people. 
uh, but they misunderstand why he came. For the sake of sin, not to make good people great or good people better, but to save dead people uh, from their sin. So huge paradigm shift he's starting to make with his preaching and his miracles. But at this point, you could say the nation as a whole was disillusioned with Jesus and his ministry. So unmet expectations. Many people actually just expected a political Messiah. They were at that point, Roman annexed their land uh, from the Greeks. They really hadn't had their land back in their hands. They were, they were back, but they weren't really back in their land. And so they're divinely given homeland. And so they're expecting a political Messiah to overthrow Roman government. And so many were expecting that, and Jesus wasn't quite, this is a year and a half after he begins his ministry. And so relatedly, it's likely that John being in prison, himself preaching about the Messiah, bringing salvation to the world, but also judgments to the world, was just confused. And he's wondering, I'm sitting here in prison as a prophet of God who prepared the way for Jesus. I've been here a year and a half. What's going on? Where's the kingdom? Where's the salvation? Where's the judgment possibly for, for my captors? All I'm hearing about Christ is that he's doing things like refraining from fasting and dining with prostitutes and healing people and just preaching a lot. But where's the, where's the, the meat of the kingdom here? Where's the, where's the war, essentially? Where's the reestablishment of of the land that God gave us and our people uh, so, so long ago. So, so that's the background and the context here. It's likely what's going through John's mind is this disillusionment, maybe not widespread in terms of every aspect of the way he's thinking about the Messiah, but there's certainly some problems here, or else he wouldn't send his disciples to go ask him. There's some things that aren't matching up with what he, what he expected. So after this, then, in verses 4 to 6 and beyond, Jesus answers John's disciples, and his answer is incredible. I encourage you guys to, to see this against the backdrop of misunderstanding. Jesus is very loving in how he moves towards John through John's disciples and says, basically, a beautiful, developed, theological, expansive, yes, I am. I am here. But I'm not quite on your timeline that you expected, and I'm not judging in the way that you expected either. I'm here to save in the exact way that you expected either. So let's read that now. Matthew 11, 4 to 6. Jesus continues, and Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So this is great in a couple of levels. So look at the way he responds. Remember what John's probably thinking. On one level, on a simpler level, more of a matter-of-fact level, Jesus is just saying that the prophets predicted all of this stuff. You've heard what I'm doing. He's actually alluding to Isaiah 35 here and Isaiah 61, two different Old Testament passages that were, that were inspired and spoken and written down hundreds of years before Christ, but they were about the Messiah, about the king. The Messiah means anointed one or king, this promised one that would bring restoration, would recreate the earth and enslave the enemies of God's people and provide a kingdom, peace and protection and deliverance and perfect rulership, all of that, that good kingdoms do, but in a perfect level. All of this is associated with this Messiah, and it's, it's in connection with these types of things happening. The, the prophets predicted it. So J Jesus is just saying, go tell John what you hear and what you see. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the Bible. Remind him that I, what I'm doing is lining up actually perfectly with what the prophets indicated. So on one level, it's very matter-of-fact, but on another level, not so much, but this is the more important level, I think. On another level, I think he's subtly addressing John's concern about judgment. Remember that. In prison, John's worried about that. He's probably thinking, 
Where's the judgment for my captors, my imprisoners? Where's the manifest physical kingdom that you're bringing into, into the world? I think Jesus responds to John's wonder about freedom and salvation. Where is that? Jesus is just saying, I am judging your captors. Look what he says here in verses 4 to 6. I think he's responded by saying, don't worry. Be encouraged. Take heart. I am judging your captors. I'm judging demons. I'm judging blindness. I'm judging storms. I'm judging death. And if you, if you span back a little bit and understand how much sin and death are related, how much blindness and lameness and, the, and, and demoniacs are related to sin and the fallenness of all creation, basically what Jesus is saying is, I have come to judge sin. You're worried about the judging of these physical captors, these couple of guys, or Herod himself. But I, here's how you've got to think about judgment. I have come for that purpose, but look what I'm doing. Look what the Bible says. I'm judging death. I'm judging sin, your true enemy, which is the cause of death. And in this way, I am setting up a kingdom. Hear the Bible. This is what they predict. Your true problem is much, much greater than those prison bars. This is what I think John is thinking. I think he's a lot like a lot of us. And some of you aren't exactly here, and that's, that's fine. Some of you are on the other side or one of two sides of this. But a lot of us, even as Christians, are at this place where we see some value and some importance in Jesus, and we understand this to a degree, but not really. Where we say, I don't know if I think sin is my big, biggest problem. I have, I have other problems that worry me more on a daily basis, that give me a lot more stress, that make me sweat, that keep me up at night a lot more than sin transgression, the fact that I'm separated from God, that I've rebelled, that I've put myself at the center of the universe and taken him, taken him out of it. It's everywhere. I mean, I, I have to qualify sometimes what I mean when I share my story and I tell some people that I'm a lost sinner. Because what they hear sometimes is, oh yeah, no one's perfect. I say, no, you don't understand. I, I, I've got to qualify this. What I mean is, I am a rotting corpse in a tomb spiritually incapable of doing any spiritual good before God whatsoever. That's what the Bible says. I am a rotting corpse spiritually. I have zero hope in the world. I can't do anything good before God. Nothing. The Bible says all of this. That's the state of affairs. And you see, we're deceived into thinking sin's not that bad. And it's everywhere, you guys. Everywhere. Not just in the secular world. This stuff's in seminaries, religious books, spiritualities, political philosophies. We're not that bad. No one's perfect, but we're pretty good people. You could say it's one of the mantras of our culture. Work hard. You can do whatever you want. Believe enough, you can get there. What's at the basis of that? We're pretty good people, right? And yes, God's common grace is alive in our lives, for sure. He's gracefully at work, and we're still in his image. But the Bible teaches we are not just bad people. The problem's worse than being bad people. It's that we're dead people. And dead people lie there and rot and turn into bones, and then finally dust. They don't do anything. We need someone to call into tombs, not to live a life that's great for us to follow. We need someone to raise the dead. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's saying to John. You're worried about prison bars. Haven't you heard? I've raised dead people. Doesn't that excite you? Haven't you heard the scriptures? Have you gone way back into Genesis 3, where you saw Adam and Eve, and how they fell to sin and rebelled against God, and God said, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. Death was not part of the original, original plan. It came through rebellion. That's the problem that needs to get fixed. That's the problem that God 
has to address and does, uh, does address through his son. That's what he remedies. So you see, if we redefine the problem, this is something big too, especially if you're new to the Bible, something I really want, to un- want you to understand theologically about how we interpret it. And that is the relationality of doctrines. So in other words, when, when you redefine the problem of the Bible, you may not intend it, but you always, always redefine the remedy. Always. So if sin's not that big a deal, Jesus came for other things. He came to support my political agenda, or he came, like I said before, this is a common one, to make good people great. So no one's perfect, but he came to make pretty good people, to shift them maybe 10 degrees. Not a 180, not to raise them from the dead, but to shift them 10 degrees to be more humble, to give to the poor, and things like that. And if they do that well enough, they'll get into heaven. But there's nothing further from the biblical truth than that. That's the world's definition of Christianity, not the Bible's. And so, but you see how all it's related to sin. If, but if sin is bigger, if it's, that, if it's this big, if it's death, if it can't do any spiritual good before God whatsoever, and we're all hellbound, then the solution has, the solution's much more likely going to be that for this type of reader of the Bible. And so what, what Jesus is doing here in part is trying to realign and say, don't you see blindness and lameness and de- the demonized are walking the streets and I'm touching them and rebuking things even from a distance and they're disappearing? Isn't that better? And how these things are related to death. I'm, re- I'm staring death in the face and winning. See, that, that's, that's the kingdom of God. That's the greater issue, the greater biblical historical problem that we, that we have to see and we grow numb to it because of what our culture says to us, what other religious teachers say to us, what we ourselves say to ourselves. This stuff's everywhere. And for many of you today, that may be the point of all of this. Just hear that. Then you can just check out. Just hear that. Listen to the word of God and saying to you that sin is, there's no bigger problem in your life, no matter what you've got going on. Not to, it's not to say those problems aren't a big deal at all. God loves you and he cares about the details of your life. But he clearly says in his word to all of us that the biggest problem we have is that we are sinners separated from a holy God. If you don't feel it, then start up here. This is where it starts. Reading the Bible and saying this is God's word. This is what Person A says, or the world says, or what I thought before, and this is what the Bible says. Which am I, what am I going to believe? Which is true. This is true. Jesus is truth, speaking into a forest of lies. Because we all are born into lies, thinking we're not that bad. But Jesus actually says he raises that bar, like we talked about way back in the Sermon on the Mount. Raises the bar to expose this, so that we, re- we define properly, in a biblical, true manner, why he came into the world. Remit, or problem and remedy are always related. Always remember that. Problem and remedy always related. When you raise sin, then you look for a savior from sin. But if you lower sin, you look for a good guy to follow. If you lower sin, just a guy to emulate. If you lower sin, maybe there's a lot of ways to God. If you lower sin, yeah, he's kind of like, he's kind of like Muhammad. He's kind of like Buddha. He's kind of like my dad. He's kind of like my best friend. who's also a really good guy. You just you muddy the waters, and then we're, in, we're instantly, instantly, really, a million miles from the, the biblical Jesus. All right. Now, with this said, this does, so Jesus is here to judge sin. He's here to judge death, and in that way, bring the kingdom of God into the world. But it doesn't mean that Jesus does not bring judgment against people into the world. He certainly does, just in due time. He's already been rebuking religion and self-righteousness in some, He's speaking about hell a lot already. But again, that's the point. The true problem here is spiritual more than physical. Jesus is here to bring salvation and judgment, but it all, it all hinges on him. It all has to do with him. 
So if we're with him and believe in him, we're saved. If we're apart from him, or to pull from that image that we saw a couple, a couple weeks ago when he raised the dead girl, when, when we're kept outside of the house of him, we're kept away from the resurrection through disbelief, then we're not. Then we stand condemned, the Bible says. But here's the good news. That's all the bad news. We just talked about the bad news for a while. Here's the good news. He's patient. He's patient. Even taking judgment upon himself in our place and wooing us to himself to believe in him for deliverance. So going back to John's likely question in his mind, where's the judgment? In part, it's coming. But in part, Jesus is saying, it's about to be poured out on me in your place. That's where it is. If you want judgment now, before Jesus dies on the cross for sins, dude, we're, we're all toast. Toast. There's, there's no hope and no atonement. But Jesus is saying, I'm patient. I'm expressing the patience of God, but also I'm fixing my eyes on Jerusalem. I'm heading towards the cross, and I'm going to die actually for sin in sinner's place as a perfect human being, but also fully God. He bore judgment. Some of you didn't know that, that that's what Jesus did on the cross. It's part of what he did. He bore the judgment of God on himself as a human and also as, well, as the God-man, fully human, fully God, and in that way died as an intercessor, being fully God and fully human in between us and God. That's the gospel. We sang about the high priestly work of Jesus a few minutes ago in that last song before, um, or before the offering song. Now, why this fear? The high priestly work of Jesus. That's what it means. Like a high priest represented people before God in the Old Testament. He's the final one. But by his blood, he's also the sacrifice. He's everything. He fulfills all of it. But that, that is, that's the good news. So where's the judgment? In part, in the biggest way, it's going to be on him. It's going to be placed on him if you believe. That's the good news. Isn't that amazing news? In one sense, super sobering. In another sense, is there any more reason to sing and rejoice at all in the world than that? God loves us to that extent. He went to that end. Uh, to save us from our sins. That's atonement. It's on him or it's on us in the end. That's, that's the difference. If we believe, judgment is placed on him for us. Um, and we are passed over uh, from that. Glory to God. Okay, let's keep going. Matthew eleven seven to 19, finish the passage up here. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he is... Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified 
by her deeds. All right, so going back to the first part of this, it's likely here that the crowds witnessing this exchange between Jesus and John's disciples may have gotten the wrong idea that Jesus was somehow in opposition to John. So Jesus sets out to correct this by speaking highly of John and his ministry. He's, he really, really sets him high here. If there's no one greater. He sets John really high. He says, was he a reed shaken in the wind? In other words, an unstable, waffling preacher, unsure of truth? No. He took a very firm line in his preaching when he pointed to Christ. Very firm line. Did he wear soft clothes, comfortable clothes, like in a king's house? No. But the clothes, the more uncomfortable clothes of a prophet. Then this is really important. So if you want to understand where John the Baptist even came from in, in a theological sense or how the, the way was prepared for him, the preparer of the way for Christ, understand this. And he quotes from two Old Testament passages, Exodus 23.30 and Malachi 3.1, kind of a combination of those two to make this one quote, which refers to a messenger preparing the way for God. And he quotes that and makes a direct link to John the Baptist. It's great when the Bible does this. We don't have to speculate then, right? Or do the hard work of piecing that together. Jesus just says, this is what it meant. John the Baptist was in mind when that was spoken. He makes that direct link. And later he actually says, he develops on that and says, if you have ears to hear it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Which is drawing from a different passage in Malachi 4, 5, which are some of the last words of the Old Testament. So, so hear this. You have a whole Old Testament these are literally some of the last words right before the Gospel of Matthew, which we're studying now. The last words spoken to Israel before the prophets were very silent for about 400 years before Christ came. This is what Malachi says in, in verse 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord means a day of salvation. This day of really the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. The one's going to bring restoration and a great return of people back to God. No more separation. So it's a great promise. It's basically synonymous with, with the day of, of salvation. But in conjunction with that, right before that, God says through the prophet Malachi, I'm going to send you Elijah. And now Elijah lived well before this. And he's, he's uh, long been taken up to heaven. He didn't, it's one of the two people in the Bible we know that didn't die. He was taken up, but he's no longer on earth. And so God is saying, I'm going to send, I'm going to send you uh, Elijah. And there's debate on whether or not this is actually Elijah. John the Baptist is actually Elijah that returned to earth, or if it's someone like Elijah. I don't think it's super critical either way, but I, th I take more of the latter stance that I think John the Baptist is like Elijah-like. Because the Bible operates that way a lot. It, it works in, in types or pictures. There are people that are like Jesus a lot in the Old Testament, but actually aren't Jesus, and so I think it's actually similar here. I think John the Baptist is, well, Jesus is saying quite clearly, he is the Elijah who was to come. He is the one that came to prepare the way for me. He's the He's the preparer, but I actually, I actually am the way. And John the Baptist does actually, not just in name, but in his ministry and even the way he wears his clothes, uh, resembled Elijah a lot. I actually had a, a chart here to indicate that. So a few things here. Elijah, as it says in the Bible, in the Old Testament, wore hair garments and leather belts, just like John did, as we learn in the New Testament. Elijah was caught up to heaven while in the Jordan River. And John the Baptist served a lot in the wilderness around the Jordan and actually baptized people right in the Jordan, and they were both biblically called uh, prophets. There are a couple other things too, but those are uh, the major biblical ones. So just think about the timeline there for a second too. Again, you have all of Old Testament history, 
You have Malachi the prophet, the last prophet, saying, I'm going to send you an Elijah-like figure before the day of the Lord. And literally, like in your Bible, if you read the thing cover to cover, it's like a few pages later. You have someone that looks like John, that looks like Elijah, that's actually in the Jordan River, right where where Elijah was taken up into heaven in the Old Testament, uh, talking about God's kingdom. And like, speaking prophetically. It's like, if you're going to tune Jew to this, you're going to be like, even if you don't have the, the written scriptures, and they didn't in that day, but they had the Old Testament, you'd be like, Elijah, right? He looks like him, he sounds like him, he's serving right where Elijah did uh, when he was taken up into heaven in the Old Testament. And you'd be like, there he is. But we don't even have to speculate about that because Jesus just says clearly, if you didn't have any of that, Jesus says he is the one. He's the Elijah. He's here right before the time of salvation, right before the epoch, the New Testament of grace comes into, comes into the world. So, This is just another way for Jesus then to say, all this is to say, Jesus is just going back, he's spanning backwards, and he's saying, in a great biblical theological manner, I am the Christ. I am here. John's the Elijah, the preparer of the way for me. He prepared the way, but I am the way. He prepared it, he talked about it, he preempted it. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So, He serves a great role, but a lesser role to me in the reality of the kingdom of God. So, that's why you can say in this passage, the least of the kingdom of God are greater than John. Because John's like an Old Testament figure. He's the final Old Testament saint. And the New Testament now is what he was preparing the way for is here. So, the least that are in Christ are greater than these Old Testament shadows and prophets and predictors and anticipators. That's why he says that here. But again, This is one of the most important parts here too. Going back to verse 12. Here again is what no one else, or no one understood. Not even John the Baptist. We know this biblically as well. Not just presuming this. Not even John. The normative nature of the kingdom suffering violence. John didn't understand that. Nor did John's disciples or Jesus' disciples. At the cross they fled, right? Verse 12 it says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God has suffered violence. In other, in other words, it's being attacked. It's being persecuted. And the violence are taking it by force. This is a negative, negative idea here. So he's saying, until, so basically saying for all of my ministry, from, from the days of John the Baptist when he was ministering about a year and a half ago or so until now, the kingdom of heaven as it's come into the world has been misunderstood, persecuted, rejected, hated. Jesus is already probably being plotted against here uh, for, uh, for his death. You know, it's, being, it's being attacked It's suffering violence. And John didn't get this. John's in prison under Herod, remember. He's part of it. He's suffering. He's he's a prophet. He preached about Jesus. And he's in prison under Herod for this, for the faith. And not too long from now, here's the connection between it. Not too long from now, Jesus would go to trial before Herod as well. And also Pilate. And be sentenced to crucifixion. And precisely in that manner, usher in God's kingdom. So, in this way, you not only have John, he, John's not understanding this, but he's still a picture of it. You can't, you can't get around that. John is not just preparing the way with his words, his preaching in Matthew 3, but really here in Matthew 11, he's preparing the way for Christ with his, with his actions, with what's happening to him. And actually in Matthew 17, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more on this a few weeks from now, uh, but in Matthew 17, Jesus makes this connection for us too. He says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, John the Baptist, and They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also, that's key, so also the Son of Man, or Jesus, will certainly suffer at their hands. So 
John is basically a type. He's a picture. He's a demonstration of a suffering prophet underneath Herod that Jesus will later fulfill. He's ultimately going to suffer. And actually, John's going to be beheaded by Herod here as well. So Jesus will die. He will be sentenced to be crucified under Pilate. This is all building the story. He's preparing the way with his words and his actions. It's awesome. Jesus is just speaking into that a little bit by saying, the kingdom of God must suffer violence. It has been. This is a piece to it. This is how the kingdom of God will come into the world. It's going to come through suffering. If Jesus does not suffer on the cross, there's no kingdom. Or maybe there is, but everybody perishes. Everybody dies. Everybody's judged. Without this type of kingdom, none are saved because sin is not passed over. Sin is not placed on a substitute. Debt is not paid off. Debt of sin is not paid off for us. So, so that's where all of this is headed. Jesus is about to be crucified under, under Pilate, under Herod, and in that way to suffer, to effectively wear prophet's clothing, the uncomfortable clothing of a prophet. He's going to do that in a way that John typifies, but later on the cross. All right. What does this mean for us then? I want to start by looking at uh, verse 3 one more time. John's question back in prison. John sends his disciples to Jesus and says, Are you the one or shall we look for another? And I love that. Got me thinking this week about how everyone's looking for a savior. Here John and the whole nation is, and really for all time, everybody in some capacity is looking for someone else to to make them better. Got this from Mark Driscoll today, a pastor in Seattle. He says, a politician, a draft pick, a new baby, everyone's waiting for a Messiah, somebody to make us better, but only Jesus can deliver. Everybody's looking. Everyone's looking for a Savior. Everyone's looking for a Messiah. It could take different shapes and sizes and forms, but everyone's looking for one. So the question then is, who are you looking for? This is where, it, this is where it, we're, we're, we're seeing this story, but you see how it just comes right back on us and says, what do you think? What do you say? Who is Jesus to you? And not just man Christ, but if someone asked you, what, why did he come into the world? Why did he die on the cross? What's the nature of sin? How bad is it? What would your answers be? What, what, what do you understand him to, uh, to be? Put yourself in the prison. Put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes. Put yourself in the crowds listening to all of this take place. And better yet, just hear the word of God call us to account today. Jesus can't be whatever we want. He can't. Otherwise, Jesus just here would say, yes, John's perspective, great, Uh, go encourage him. But he doesn't. He takes the time to correct John, right? He corrects him and says, no, this is what you're thinking, but this is truth. This is what your expectations are. Here's the right ones. And so he takes time to correct him. Jesus can't be whatever we want. He didn't bend bend to John the Baptist's desires for who the Messiah would be. He reoriented him to, to the Bible. So I think what this means is that some of us, all of us to a degree, Christian or not, but especially for some of us today, we have to be disillusioned in a good way about Christ. You came in thinking, this is what I thought Jesus was about, but here's what the Bible says today. These are my my expectations of a Messiah. Kind of like in prison with John, or you're in the crowds, you're hearing this, and oh, I didn't know that. This is what Jesus says about himself, and that's not not my perspective on him. So he's not here to to support my political agenda. He's not even here ultimately for my temporal comfort. And he's not, like I said before, here to make good people great. He's here to help me on a much greater level. He's here to take my sins away. Period. That's what the Bible says. That's his mission. That's why he came into the world. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Timothy, 
Here's a trustworthy saying worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. Period. That's why he came. Don't cheapen it by adding to it or changing it. Get the problem of sin big so Jesus and his grace get all the bigger in your eyes. That's, what, that's how Jesus is responding here beautifully. He doesn't just say, yep, go, go tell him, yep, I'm the one. He says, no, tell him this. So he understands the prophets indicated this, that his problem's bigger and more spiritual, that I'm raising the dead. Tell him I'm judging sin. Tell him I'm here to fight the devil in their place. Tell him that I'm ultimately going to bear judgment in his place. You want judgment? It's going to come for, on you on your sin, but I'm going to go to the cross and bear the sins of the world. I'm the ultimate lamb of God who's going to die for, die for the sins of the world. That's his mission. And that's what he means here, too, by going to that proverbial statement he makes about the flute and the dirge, the song and the dirge. He says, we played the flute, but you didn't dance. So he, he actually turns to the crowd here and has some harsh words for them because he knows that the vast majority of the crowd is not listening, not responding to the right Christ. And so he says, we played the flute, but you didn't dance. You didn't respond to it. We sang a dirge or a more mournful song like played at a funeral. Or John did especially when he talked about repentance and judgment. But you didn't care. Uh, but the dirge of sin has been playing and the song of deliverance from sin has been playing. But you couldn't care less. The people would neither, this is what he's getting at in verses 18 and 19 as well. The people could, uh, would neither repent with John nor rejoice with Jesus in the gospel of the kingdom. They just made this illogical argument that John's not eating or drinking, so he must have a demon. And Jesus is a glutton, so, you know, why follow? It doesn't make sense. But that's, that's, he's saying, that's your excuse. But I've been playing the flute of the gospel of salvation with my teachings. John has been playing the dirge of sin. He's trying to expose sin and baptize people and lead people to repentance and say, you need a tomb caller. You need a dead raiser. And you didn't listen to that either. You know, but... but there is still time. And so Jesus is saying here, that's why he says, don't be offended or tripped up by me. A lot of you haven't responded, but what about right now? And that's my invitation for you guys today too. Wherever you are spiritually, the dirge of sin and the flute of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his death and resurrection from you, is plain today, right here. Are you going to dance to it? Are you going to, to mourn with sin, but dance with Christ or not? That, that's the response. Some of you won't. Some of you will for the first time. And some of you will for the millionth time and do it joyfully. There will be all kinds of responses today, I promise you, just like there was in the scriptures, just like there was in the ministry of Christ. But which one are you going to be? Dance, mourn with the, the dirge of sin, dance with the gospel of Christ, or just reject and make Jesus more of your pet Messiah that uh, is there to make you comfortable and maybe serve your political purposes, but not the purposes of the greater kingdom of God spreading around the earth, first and foremost in the hearts of dead sinners like us. So finally, he says, blessed or happy or comforted are those who do not reject the fact that Jesus is a sin-destroying Savior. John's in prison. Some of you guys are suffering deeply right now. Some of you aren't. Most, all of us will, of course. Wherever you are, though, through pain or trial and seasons of blessing alike, do not reject the fact that Jesus is a Savior. That's the ultimate point here. Do not reject it. Listen. And dance to it and rejoice. And some of you just needed to hear that today because you haven't been for months, but you used to. Wherever you are, just hear it and rejoice. Your, your problem's a lot bigger than you ever, you ever dared think. 
But God's grace is way bigger than you ever thought as well. Glory to God. So believe and rest in him and receive. Maybe for the first time today as well. If you haven't been a Christian yet, haven't responded to Jesus, just come to the cross messy. The whole point of this is you're dead. You can't make a corpse prettier, right? It's just going to keep getting deader. So just call out to Jesus and he will come rescue you. He wants to. The Bible is clear on that. He loves you and he gave Christ to you as a gift, not something to be purchased and earned. Go back to Isaiah 55, like I read earlier. Come to the waters, buy and eat, but here's the key, without money. It's free. Come and purchase and partake and buy and eat of salvation, but do it without money. That's what God invites us all to uh, today. So glory to God. Let's, just re- let's respond in song here and I'll close in prayer in a minute here too. God, thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for the gospel in Matthew 11. Thank you for pointing us back to you uh, through many different types of images and types and shadows, but also very directly from the prophets and from your mouth that you came to raise the dead. You came to undo sin, which is what brought death in the world in the first place. You are a sin-destroying Savior, the lover of our souls, the one who actually loved us to the point of dying for us. It's incredible. A lot of people in this room probably have never been loved. None of us have been loved to that degree, but never been loved sacrificially even by maybe a spouse or a father or a friend. But the Bible says that's how you love them. And so, God, I pray you'd penetrate their heart. Just get inside of them and make them, cause them to believe this. Woo them to faith that this Jesus actually lived and he actually said these things and he actually died a real death, actually experienced a real resurrection, defeating death in their place and invites them into that experience through faith. Um, We pray for more souls, God, here today and beyond. Save more and expand your kingdom that way, uh, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.